Well, welcome, everybody. Um, I feel like David Dimbleby, for those of you who have a UK background, um, sharing any questions. Let's hope there are no BNP members in the audience, um, <laughs> and so we could have a friendly debate. Um, this is a, a challenge. We, we are here, and I think we all feel pretty naked because we've all been told not to use PowerPoint. Um, and I think it must be about 15 years ago the last time I gave a talk or, or did anything like this without using PowerPoint. So I think uh, I'm certainly suffering withdrawal symptoms. I don't know whether my, uh, the rest of the panel is also. Uh, a very distinguished panel that we have here today. Um, but the idea of this session is for it to be uh, a discussion, uh, make it interactive as much as possible. Now, what we're going to be doing is... Um, I'm going to introduce the session very briefly, um, and then I will ask each of the speakers in turn to speak for five minutes, um, talking about uh, really trying to explain to us why they're here for, uh, to talk to us about medical innovation, what is the innovation in this uh, sphere of uh, innovative drugs or devices that they've been involved with. And then I've just sprung on them in the last five minutes uh, one question that I would like them to try and answer in their five-minute presentation at the end is, what do you know now that you would have liked to have known when you started that along this process, be it five years ago, ten years ago? Um, I certainly know what my answer would be, but I'd be interested to know what um, the uh, other members of the panel will, will, will say in answer to that. Then we're meant to have a brief discussion between the uh, six of us and then throw it open to the audience. Now, if you look at the program, or at least the notes we were sent, um, it was 45 minutes for the kind of intra-panel discussion and 30 minutes for throwing it open to the audience. I'd like to reverse that because I don't think um, it's necessarily all that interesting if you're sitting at the top there looking with your binoculars down on us, having a, a quiet chat at the front. So we will tackle a few questions but then I'd like to throw it open much more quickly and make it as interactive as possible. Now, when we do that, I am told that there will be a roving mic. Is the roving mic? Yep, there will be a roving mic. Two roving mics. So when we go into the interactive session, um, please wait for the mic. I'll try and um, uh, point to the person asking the question. A mic will come to you. If you could introduce yourselves and then ask the question. So I've been asked also to, to say that um, this session will be immediately followed by lunch. So we'll be going till about 11.45, and after that we'll break into lunch, and then the uh, uh, conference will resume at 1.15 uh, with parallel session three um, in this uh, particular Nelson Mandela Lecture Theatre. Uh, I've also been asked to remind you that there's a question box at the registration desk for tomorrow's plenary session with a stellar group of speak, uh, speakers and moderated by Sir John Bell. So if you have any questions for tomorrow's plenary session, please write them out and put them in a box so they can be got ready for tomorrow. So those are the preliminaries. Um, in terms of this session, which has the long title, Innovation to Practice, What are the Challenges to Bringing Innovative Drugs and Devices into Healthcare Delivery and Practice Globally? Um, I think that what it's trying to say is how do we bring innovation on a worldwide scale, both in the field of biotech, so pharma, the um, innovative drugs, but also medtech devices. Um, and I think the panel reflects the fact that uh, we have expertise here in both 
biotech and um, medtech. Now, I think the reason why I've been asked to chair the session is um, because um, I, in fact, was involved in these lectures last year, so I did my stint um, last year, and uh, here I'm only here to, to, to arbitrate and moderate the session. Um, but uh, just a brief bit of background. I'm not going to go through the background of the speakers in details because you've got them in your pack. Um, there's some uh, varied backgrounds, very, interested, very, very interesting and very relevant backgrounds, uh, but I, it's best if you read that. Uh, all I would say is that um, in our Institute of Biomedical Engineering, um, we are the only institute from the Math, Physical, and Life Sciences Division, because we are divided into uh, five divisions or four divisions plus one extra uh, in, in Oxford, um, and we're part, as engineers, we're part of math, physical sciences, and life sciences, but we're the only institute of that division which is actually on the medical campus. And I think that's very important because often innovation is where two different disciplines meet. And, of course, the best example of that in this country, I'm sure you know, is uh, the Laboratory of Molecular Biology in Cambridge, uh, which has had 14 Nobel Prize winners. Now, they've been going since the early 50s. We've only been going two years, so uh, we can't claim any Nobel Prizes yet. Uh, but it is certainly the case that by bringing engineers and medics together, that almost forces innovation to happen as we begin to talk each other's language and begin to make a contribution um, to solving problems perhaps from a slightly different angle that they've been looked at before. So that's perhaps one clue that we can um, uh, maybe come back to in the discussion, certainly bringing uh, two different disciplines or more than two disciplines together is a catalyst for innovation. It has been in Cambridge, and we're hoping it will be in our institute here in Oxford. Now, on my right, I've got uh, one of my colleagues in the institute that I will introduce in a second, who will be the first person to, to give um, uh, his sort of five-minute presentation as to uh, why he's on this panel, as it were. Uh, but before that, um, please, uh, if you have any questions for um, the members of the panel, could you save them up for the interactive discussion? Uh, I think we've been given clear orders, and although I'm, I'm often... Um, I have a reputation for not necessarily keeping to orders or keeping to time. Um, I think I better this time round. And so I would ask you to reserve your questions for the panelists. Uh, I'm sure they'll be controversial in their five minutes. Please reserve the questions for when we go in open session a little bit later on. So that's the preliminaries over. I'm going to ask uh, Dr. Konstantin Kusios, who is um, uh, one of the young stars in our institute. Uh, and I... And, um, I have a, a little bit to do with him being here because I chaired the, the uh, panel that first appointed him to his first post here in Oxford. Um, and uh, we certainly made the right decision. And uh, uh, Constantine is involved in many things in our institute, but I think what he will talk to you about today uh, mostly is the company that uh, he set up a couple of years ago, Organox. So over to you, Constantine. Thank you very much, and thank you for enabling me to be here in more ways than one. Um, I am, um, as Lionel said, um, a reader in biomedical engineering in the Institute. I um, had a research group of um, about 25 people, um, some of whom are actually in the audience today, um, who primarily work on therapeutic applications of ultrasound. Um, and so this is current academic research which is resulting, uh, or will result hopefully over the next few years, 
into medical devices that seek to use ultrasound for therapy, either for non-invasive surgery in the context of cancer or for minimally invasive delivery of drugs or orthopedic applications. But I think the primary reason why um, I am here today is uh, I think the emphasis is more on young rather than star looking, 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 um, 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 uh, looking at the audience is, is that I'm, I'm right in the heat of the battle of bringing a medical device to market. Um, the reason being that um, 14 months ago I uh, was um, one of two academic founders of Organox um, which is a company trying to bring a new normal thermic organ perfusion device to market. Let me make this a little bit um, more clear perhaps for the uninitiated. The idea is to build a device that can keep an organ alive outside the body, uh, certainly for periods in excess of 24 hours and, and for periods of up to a week. And the way in which this is achieved is by actually um, uh, going against the stream, against what is currently done in organ preservation, which is to take the organ out of the body and place it in an ice box, and instead um, um, connect the organ to a blood supply, uh, feed it, oxygenate it in a manner um, uh, so that it doesn't actually know that it has left the body at all. And the idea there is that you avoid a lot of the injuries associated with cold preservation. It is not that dissimilar to food preservation, which we all experience in, in our fridges. Cooling something down slows the process down but doesn't stop it. We still have, after a few days, to um, dispose of whatever was in the refrigerator because the decay process is slowed down but ongoing. With warm preservation, there is no theoretical limit to how long an organ can actually be kept alive. And the really extraordinary thing is that these organs outside the body are actually functioning as if they were inside the body. So the thing that got me into biomedical engineering when I was 19 and finishing my fourth year project as an undergraduate student in Cambridge was the fact that I witnessed this liver making bile it's outside the body. I was, I, I was actually holding an organ in my hands as an engineer, which I was perfusing. And this was actually enabling me to um, uh, hold life outside the body and replicate life outside the body. And that was an absolutely extraordinary and transformative experience. And it's been a very long journey um, because, as you can imagine, I'm still young but not quite 19 any, anymore. It's taken us 12 years to bring the technology from uh, essentially what was a laboratory study, a benchtop study, to um, a, a company format suitable for commercialization. And the reason why it's been 12 years in the making is that it's an extremely complex space and understanding how a human organ might function outside the body when isolated from the rest of its functioning components is no trivial matter. So with tremendous support from the Institute, um, um, Technicos, uh, who are one of the financial backers of the Institute and ISIS Innovation, Organox was created in December 2008 with the specific mission of building a device to enable normothermic liver perfusion outside the body. And I choose my words here very carefully. The primary objective of having such a device is to beat um, 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 the current technology that is available um, for organ preservation. But it's not really the duration of preservation that is the interesting thing. What this technology is extraordinary at enabling is you can take organs that are currently being discarded for transplantation and actually resuscitate them. So within current donation practices, without changing anything about the number of donors we have, 
uh, are, we reckon we can double the number of livers available for transplantation in any European country or in the US. And that in the present trend of a massive organ shortage on both sides of the Atlantic is something that is very, very much in demand. However, by having such a device that can keep an organ outside the body, uh, you can also do a lot of other interesting things. Um, drug testing, observation of um, um, uh, various um, important pathological processes which cannot be studied within the body. And this is therefore the first of a series of applications, which, was, which is why I like to call Organox a, a normal thermic organ perfusion company rather than an organ preservation company. What has actually happened in the last um, um, uh, 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 14 months was everything I had hoped for, but nothing that I had expected. Um, it was, um, uh, it's, it's been an extremely challenging process because when you work for nine, 10 years to actually earn the right to start something, you don't quite realize that all you've earned the right to is a, a new beginning. And that's the beginning of something that is itself extremely challenging and has got a very long way to go. And nothing quite prepares you for um, uh, how much time it's going to take. People had told me that you can underestimate the time to, uh, that it takes to get a spin-out up and running by a factor of 10. So I took my then estimate and increased it by a factor of 10. And I found out that I was still a factor of 10 out in terms of the amount of time it actually can take in any given week. Um, the, 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 the issues that um, we have encountered are, are going to have a lot of commonalities with um, a, a, a small university spin-out. Um, you are a small company. Um, we, we achieved, um, in, in, in an economic downturn, one of the highest valuations ever achieved by an Oxford spin-out, which was fantastic and extremely encouraging. But um, that might make you feel important for about all of five seconds when you start talking to bigger companies who realize you're actually pretty insignificant. So you're actually trying to make an impact in an extremely competitive space holding close to no bargaining chips. And that is perhaps one of the biggest challenges of starting out. The second big issue is that you have to do an incredible amount in order to add value in a very, very short amount of time with a very finite set of resources. And, and the finite set of resources are not necessarily financial. The finite set of resources is people. When you start, you might have two or three or four people, as we did in our case, who know what the technology is about. As soon as this technology um, uh, needs to go out there and be communicated to external parties, you suddenly find that you're spread extremely thin on the ground. Um, I won't go into all of the challenges, because I hope we'll have the opportunity to discuss some of them in, as, a, as a panel and in discussion later today. Um, but answering Lionel's question um, as to what I wish I knew now that I didn't know five years ago and 18 months ago, um, is, is, is really the extent to which there are no rules, there are no models, and there is no prior advice that will specifically and exactly apply to you. So when you come out of a university environment, you're used to there being a corporate structure, you're, there, you, you're used to producing answers to questions to which there are right answers. Well, this is an environment to which there are no right answers and to which there, are no, there is no rule book. Um, so, so every time someone says you can't do this any different way because it hasn't been done any other way, then that's not a business way of thinking. It's precisely by doing things not according to the rule book that it seems that things get done. And so I wish someone had told me that the you should listen to all the, all the advice that you can possibly get, but you shouldn't necessarily take it because no one will have quite encountered 
this, or will be able to provide you with an out-of-the-box solution for the fundraising problem, for the technical problem, for the corporate interaction problem, which you will face in your individual spin-out endeavors. Thank you very much, Constantine. That's a, a very good uh, way to kick off. Um, I'm sure you got some questions for him, but as I said earlier, if you could uh, save those for our interactive discussion time. I'd like to turn to uh, Professor Peter Dobson next. Peter and I um, were appointed as university lecturers in the Department of Engineering Science at the same time, 22 years ago. So we've been around a little bit longer than Constantine, uh, and Peter's faced many challenges, and I'm sure he'll talk to us now about one or two in the context of uh, medical innovation. Thank you, Peter. Thanks, Lionel. Uh, I guess it's difficult to say, know where to start. I'm pulled in about four directions at the moment. Uh, I contribute to Lionel's Institute for Biomedical Engineering and Allison's Centre for Doctoral Training and trying to pass on some of the experience and know-how to the next generation of uh, doctoral students. Uh, I also run the Begbrook Science Park for the university where we've got about 30 small companies, not all spun out of Oxford, and we have a rather unique science park because on the same site there are university laboratories. Initially, it was the Department of Materials, but now there's a mixture of people from other departments on site, so I have to keep that running. And uh, I founded two companies, and I'll tell you about the, that experience in a moment. The other main activity I do these days is I'm the advisor on nanotechnology to the research councils in the UK. Now, some of it is healthcare stuff in nano, nanomedicine, but I also see what's going on in other areas where nanotechnology is being applied. And uh, because of some people drawing the analogy with what happened in GM, uh, we get involved in a lot of socio-political debates about whether or not there should be curbs on nanotechnology. And indeed, in the audience today, is former friend and colleague, or I hope still friend and colleague, Oleg Salata, uh, who, who kicked off one of the first big programs in looking at nano safety in, in the world, indeed in Europe. So uh, we've been involved in that debate ever since the, the beginning of, of uh, people worrying about con concerns of nanotechnology. On the uh, spin-off front, uh, I had two companies Oxford Biosensors and Oxonica. Oxford Biosensors unfortunately went bust last May. Oxonica has broken up into little fragments so that the investors can get some money back. And this is one of the problems you face when you, you spin off a company. You hand it all over to CEOs and investors and if you want to stay in your university uh, position you lose a bit of control and you can guess probably what I'm going to say in the if I knew today uh, <laughs> what, what uh, if I had the knowledge when I started what I know today, I, you can guess a little bit of what I'm going to say. Oxford Biosensors was started with colleagues in chemistry, and we had the idea of extending the type of tests that people use for uh, diabetes, taking a finger prick of sample of blood, and then we would analyze that for markers to do with cardiac risk. And we had four of those markers. And by the time, this time last year, we had actually got an instrument which would, in two minutes, record triglycerides, cholesterol, HDL, and LDL. 
with around about 5 or 6% accuracy and 3% variance. And this had taken a lot longer to achieve than we first thought. And the reason was the FDA kept changing the goalposts. And I think regulatory issues are one of the things that many people entering this area should become aware of right from day one. And I would hope that in Europe we produce our own gold standards because I've got a sneaking suspicion, having talked to others, that the FDA is not just used to protect patients, but it could be a trade barrier. I don't find the same rigor being applied to U.S. companies. It might be a bit controversial to say that, but I believe that to be the case. So I would hope that Europe gets its own regulatory uh, body together. The other company, Oxonica, well, one of the reasons I think, before I go on to Oxonica, uh, one of the things which uh, led to our downfall, in a sense, was we did concentrate everything on one product. And we employed 60 people at the end, and we actually had a, a manufacturing plant making these things. I think from the point of view of investors, they would have liked to have seen some revenue generation earlier on in the day. We'd been running for nine years without generating significant revenue. And I think that it's a good idea with companies in this sector to pick some low-hanging fruit and get some revenue generation going on so that at least you've got something to fall back on if everything goes wrong on the main product. So that's one lesson there that I think I would put forward. Oxonica as a particle making, is, a, is a company making nanoparticles, and it's uh, got a range of products. It's got the diesel fuel additive that's in the stagecoach buses running around the whole of the country. It's got a sunscreen, which uh, we invented here with John Nolan, the biochemist, myself, and the other founder, invented a very safe sunscreen that does not produce any free radicals and hence damage to the skin. And that is on sale in Boots. It's, uh, to all intents and purposes, been a big commercial success, even though it doesn't generate much revenue for us. Uh, the other thing that it was making has now all been sold off to a U.S. company, and that was a sophisticated biodiagnostic tool. And the company, Oxonica, decided to sell that off and take money while it could, rather than develop it and increase its value. And again, as one of the founders, I'm not wholly in agreement with that decision. But when you relinquish power, when you relinquish a position on the board, these are the kinds of things you have to put up with as an academic. Um, in my, I've just finished by saying that in my role as the nanotechnology coordinator for the research councils in the UK, I have oversight of a huge range of really exciting stuff coming out of the whole of the university system in the UK. And my job in particular is to give guidance to get those through to commercialization as quickly and painlessly as possible. I think the job title I had was uh, through engineering to application for all of these things. So I'm looking forward to two or three very exciting years ahead in that respect. Now to go back to Lionel's question for us, I think uh, the thing that if I'd kno known today, uh, uh, known at the beginning what I know today, one of them would be regulatory issues and dealing with them. That's important. But the other is uh, to try and keep a little bit of a stronger grip on the companies that I'd set up. 
that might have meant resigning my university post. And in, in some cases, on uh, nights at 3 o'clock when I wake up in the morning worrying about things, that's one of the things I rather wish I'd done. So thank you. Okay, well, it's um, um, a controversial presentation. I'm sure that will elicit some questions. I think I'll change the first question we'll debate because, of course, we've been parochial so far, and I didn't set up the batting order, but we've been Oxford-focused. We're now going to extend it to West Coast and Australia, and we've got some very distinguished uh, speakers who've come over to Oxford to join in this panel, starting with Dr. Christopher Elias, who's come uh, from Seattle and is the president and CEO of... Uh, uh, an organization which is based in Seattle Path. Christopher. Thanks, Lionel. Um, I'm the president and CEO of Path, which is the program for appropriate technology in health. We're a nonprofit organization headquartered in Seattle, but working in 70 countries around the world on developing low cost, appropriately designed technologies for resource poor countries. We've been doing this for over 30 years, trying on the one hand, to identify, use innovation to produce solutions that are culturally acceptable, that are feasible with the often under-resourced and understaffed health systems of the developing world. And on the other hand, figuring out how to get that innovation into practice, how to incorporate it into systems that um, don't have very much resources, often don't have enough staff, to adopt that innovation and scale it for effective uh, use. We've been working on a variety of, of, of technologies across the medical device, diagnostics, drugs, and device space for over three decades. And what I want to talk about is, you know, in, in light of the panel, is what, you know, what have been some of the successes? We've just come off in global health, or what used to be, you know, as Peter referred to, tropical medicine or international health. We've come off a great decade. Over the last decade, we've seen an unprecedented increase in the political and financial attention to solving the problems of the world, not just those of rich countries. We've seen in the last 20 years roughly a seven-fold increase in the amount of funding for development assistance for health. We've seen regularly now um, pronouncements from the GA to here in Glen Eagles and in other places about the commitments to establishing uh, new global health architecture to support bringing the innovations, harnessing science and technology for the benefit of everyone in the world and not just those who are in the top two billion in terms of income. So what's worked? What's, you know, what's worked in terms of developing these new global public goods? We've seen and, and at PATH have contributed to some extent to uh, successes first in the innovation of design. When people think about uh, technological innovation, they often think about bringing new technologies, new designs uh, into instantiate them into new technologies. We've done some of that. At PATH, we have engineering and laboratory facilities in Seattle, and we also work through our vast array of public-private partnerships with pharmaceutical companies ar around the world. And we've tried to take our design efforts and incorporate our understanding of the health systems of very poor countries. So, for instance, one of the things we've worked on is a, something called the Uniject device, which is a, a pre-filled unit dose administration system, which takes into account the fact that in many places there aren't trained doctors and nurses. There are community health workers who are minimally trained. And if they had to take a standard needle and syringe, put it together, calculate a dose, measure the dose, and, it, and give the, the dose with a standard injection equipment, they wouldn't be able to do that. And in fact, in some places would be legally prohibitive from doing that because they're not trained 
before that. So what we've developed is a very simple device that allows you to prepackage medicines or vaccines in, in an easy-to-use delivery device that can then be, uh, with minimal training, used by community health workers to deliver these life-saving innovations. So for instance, recently we've put oxytocin into this device. Oxytocin is used to prevent postpartum hemorrhage, number one cause of maternal mortality around the world. And by putting it into this device, which we in developed in our laboratories in Seattle, and then licensed to Becton Dickinson, who makes it available globally, um, by putting oxytocin into this device, you can have community midwives, often doing deliveries under poor light conditions in very rural um, uh, uh, circumstances, to use a device that will allow them to give a life-saving injection of oxytocin to prevent postpartum hemorrhage in a setting where they wouldn't be able to, to use any other uh, injection approach. But while sometimes the focus has been on design, I think actually what's been more innovative in the last decade has been the innovations in partnership and financing for producing global public goods. So in partnerships, we currently at PASS have ongoing active partnerships with over 70 companies around the world, ranging from the biggest pharmaceutical companies like GSK, where we're working on a malaria vaccine, to small university spin-off biotech companies in Seattle and other places, to uh, companies in emerging economies, places like India, China, Brazil, South Africa, Russia, where we're finding the opportunity to find mutually satisfactory um, goals, companies that can meet their needs for sustaining a business model that allowed them to generate profit, and at the same time meet the needs of global public health. To give you just one example of that, we started about 10 years ago in a partnership with the World Health Organization to take on the problem of epidemic meningitis in Africa. There are 21 countries in sub-Saharan Africa where there are seasonal epidemics of meningi bacterial meningitis that shut down the health systems for two or three months a year. It's a problem that's solvable. We didn't really need new science. We know from the experience here in the UK in the 90s that conjugate vaccines for meningitis could be introduced and eliminate epidemic meningitis in the case of the UK for meningitis C. There's a different strain of meningitis that causes the epidemics in Africa, mostly meningitis A. And so the science could be, the same science that was applied here in the UK could be applied in sub-Saharan Africa, but it hadn't been because the 21 countries affected are 21 of the poorest countries in the world. And there was no business where the market made any sense to apply science and technology to solve that problem. So PATH and the World Health Organization, with funding from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, went out to take existing science and apply it into a form that would get us a vaccine that was affordable for the meningitis belt in Africa. And after talking first to the large pharmaceutical companies who really couldn't see a way to do this and come out with a very, very affordable vaccine, we partnered with the Serum Institute of India in Pune, India, and did a technology transfer where we licensed uh, intellectual property from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, uh, somewhat ironically, to PATH, and then sublicensed it to the Serum Institute of India, affected a technology transfer, and the vaccine has now been developed in India. It's been registered by the Indian regulatory authorities. We're just months away, we think, from pre-qualification by the World Health Organization, which is the regulatory step needed to make it available for use in Africa. And in our deliberations and negotiations with the Serum Institute, have that vaccine now available at a guaranteed price of 40 cents a dose. 
which has allowed the ministries of health in places like Burkina Faso, where the average expenditure on health is about $6 per person per year, to think about how to incorporate this vaccine into their health system um, at, an, at a price point that's affordable even in very poor countries in Africa. So I think while there's been tremendous innovation in design and science and technology, harnessing things like proteomics and genomics, equally important has been the innovation in partnership. And uh, without going into detail in the interest of time, parallel interventions in the, in the innovations in financing for global health. Things like the advanced market commitment, like the international financing facility for immunization, have provided the needed incentives for a much broader range of companies to become interested in working with nonprofit organizations like PATH to produce these global public health solutions. Ten years ago, we worked with a few companies who were interested primarily as part of their social responsibility platform. Today, we work with companies across a broad range of technology areas because it's part of their increasingly central to, to their new business model. Which gets me to answering, answering Lionel's question about what did I wish I knew 10 years ago when I started at PATH that um, I didn't know then. And I think that was how important the emergence of um, uh, new business models for companies, particularly in the emerging economies of India, China, Brazil, and South Africa, and other places where innovation and the systems to support innovation are rapidly developing, would be in terms of the today's world and especially tomorrow's world of producing and delivering global public goods. And 2010, I think, marks a threshold where we've had a great year, a great decade of new innovation. That will continue. It will, in fact, accelerate. But I think the critical vulnerability going forward is really what Peter talked about at the end, and it's innovations in delivery. If we don't figure out how to adopt and sustain the use of these new innovations, we'll have a pileup of innovation, and, and that will then serve as the feedback will, will serve to slow down the excitement of these new partnerships and new financing. We have to take the equal amounts of effort, intelligence, money, and work with these very weak health systems to, to innovate in the delivery of all this new innovation so that we can sustain the, the, the momentum that we've achieved over the last decade. Thank you. Giving us really a global perspective, uh, which I think um, will continue as we travel to Australia and then back to the West Coast. But uh, we're going to, to Australia now to uh, the George Institute, which is one of the co-sponsors of uh, this conference. And we've got Anthony Rogers, who's a professorial fellow there in Sydney. Uh, but also very much involved with what's happening in terms of the George Institute in Oxford. Thanks very much, Lionel. Um, yes, so uh, as you said, I'm a professor of global health at the um, George Institute, and um, I've got a wide-ranging brief there helping to um, foster innovation, in particular um, public-private partnerships. Um, and we're very lucky to have a very talented staff mostly people in clinical and applied research who are looking at trials and interventions in, in chronic and non-communicable diseases, diabetes, um, cardiovascular disease, uh, conditions like that. And along the way, a lot of those people see there's opportunities for exactly what Chris was saying of repackaging things that we know are effective and making them more affordable, accessible, and scalable. 
in low-income settings, um, requiring less monitoring, less diagnostics, et cetera, just making them more pragmaticable to be really scaled up largely in those settings. And um, so what we're trying to do is, is a number of things to help speed up that process. Um, and to uh, some, some practical examples of that, and, and again, coming to Constantine's example of it takes so long, um, it was actually more than 10 years um, since we started looking at uh, developing this polypill um, Bordreau combination. We discussed it with Richard Pito in 1999. He'd been thinking about it for a long time before, but it was really then that we started. Um, and if someone had asked me then how long would it take, I would have said a year or two or three perhaps. And it's 10 years later, and we're still really just at the start of, of the clinical trials and looking at that. So in, in terms of the, um, the lessons from the panel that you're trying to draw out, Lionel, I think um, some of the key things that we learned from there is that the glittering science, the crushing public health need for these things is necessary but not nearly sufficient um, for them to happen quickly. Um, there was a couple of crucial things missing. I mean, the public funding agencies hadn't really reoriented to the need to fund low-income country-relevant solutions for, for chronic diseases. The, the, the transition, the double burden epidemiology had been clear for, for some decades, but still hadn't yet reoriented their, their systems for that. Um, and also, um, what we quickly learnt is when the existing commercial players, when there's gaps between them operating, that's a real issue. So Big Pharma very much focused towards um, high margin, low, low volume type solutions for, for uh, Western markets. Generics Pharma um, focused on low margin, high volume solutions, but very few players working in the middle. And for New solutions that try and that are, that are quite radically new, uh, certainly in terms of the re regulatory pathway, that's a big problem if you don't have industry players um, that are specifically working in that space, um, because someone is going to have to stump up with a, a large amount of money for the R and D, um, and if you don't have public sources, then it's got to be private sources. Um, just uh, some other innovations we've been involved in that had a similar kind of um, uh, flavor that, that uh, Professor Pia mentioned in terms of technologies that will help scale things up. Um, we developed a, a mobile phone-based texting application for smoking cessation around about 2000, um, giving kids free texts and distracting messages so that they do something with their fingers rather than smoke. Um, we did the clinical trials. Proved it works, doubles your quit rates. But the telecom companies just weren't geared up to putting, they were just selling, selling phones in minutes at the time. And the fact that we hadn't talked to commercial partners and it was too early for that, that meant that, again, it's 10 years later and only, only just now is that starting to get scaled up. Um, and I guess another lesson we've learned along the way um, that was also mentioned earlier is the regulatory barriers. Um, I, I'm a, a medic and a public health specialist, and you think it, it, the, it's obvious the potential benefits, but you don't realize that 
everything has to go through this particular procedure where the people um, running these regulatory authorities, their job is to make sure that the guidelines are followed um, to the full extent. And uh, understandably, those regulatory guidelines are built primarily on safety for looking for new chemicals, new devices where there are concerns that they might not be safe as well as that they might be efficacious. So if you are dealing with something that is, that is novel, um, you still have to go through those same pathways. If you're dealing with something that is pragmatic um, and might have um, trade-offs, um, the regulatory guidelines just simply aren't geared for that. So you don't get any benefit whatsoever if it costs $20 a year. You don't get any benefit if it improves adherence. They're just simply not allowed to give you any leeway for that. So that was um, certainly a very hard lesson to learn. Um, and it's, but it's a very important one because getting FDA approval, getting EMEA approval is incredibly influential for the Indian drug controller, um, for example, for all the um, uh, drug approval agencies in, these, in other countries that often don't have very well-developed regulatory approval systems at all and usually rely very substantially on, on FDA, EMEA type approved as well. So um, in your time, just fast forwarding to your things, um, what would I have liked to learn? Just that it's more of a marathon rather than a sprint, actually, um, 10 years ago. And, um, and also the importance of partnerships. You've just got to be thinking of uh, what live a, a week in the shoes of your essential partners and look at it from their point of view, because you'll, you'll need partners. I think obviously we were getting some messages that are coming across from all, all the speakers. Um, having gone off to Australia, we go back to the West Coast and we finish with uh, Jerry Sanders on my left from uh, San Francisco, who's founded San Francisco Science, been involved with multiple things, including stuff in Oxford, MIT on the East Coast. I'm sure from your uh, wide experience, Jerry, you'd like to draw one or two uh, things to our attention and, and share with the audience today. Thanks. Um I developed medical technology and have been doing so for longer than I care to remember and have had some successes and many failures. Um, I want to talk to you about two of the challenges in bringing innovative medical devices to market. The first is to get your airline to deliver the luggage and as you see that's why I'm dressed the way I am because I, I couldn't, it's out of no disrespect to you, it's just this is all I have. Um, and the second, not less daunting one, um, is the FDA, and I, I'm going to take a much less charitable view of the FDA than the two gentlemen who spoke about the FDA. Um, but first, um, I just a show of hands, how many of you have heard about the Prius acceleration problem? So, so you know, uh, of course, that we have this problem now in the United States worldwide where the Prius accelerates unexplainably. Um, Toyota says it's just some simple mechanical failure. Steven Wozniak, who owns 19 Prius vehicles, <laughs> says that without a doubt it's a software bug. A show of hands, um, or, or perhaps you, how many uh, automotive software engineers do you think the National Transportation Highway and Safety Administration have on staff? How many? Give me a number. Five. You, sir, how many do you think they have? Zero. Zero. You, sir? In back, there were orange sweater. You had your hand red, up? Red, red sweater? <laughs> <laughs> no, I 
Oh, zero. You, you agree with zero. That's right. They have zero software engineers on staff. So, you know, people do what they know how to do. If you have mechanical engineers, they're going to look for a mechanical problem. And, um, and no one is going to be able to address this problem. Now, with the FDA, we have a reverse situation where we can't get anything approved unless the FDA understands it. And if the FDA doesn't have the people who understand technology and understand innovative products, you're not going to get approval. And it doesn't matter how good your device is, how much money it's going to save, how effective it is. If they don't understand it, they're simply not going to get through FDA. So um, the first point I'd make is that whether one thinks it's, it's a um, kind of proprietary function that the FDA is serving or whether one thinks that it's because they don't take other factors into account. I think, unfortunately, the reality is they're just ignorant. And ignorant not in the sense of being stupid, but ignorant in the sense of that they don't have people there who are on to the most current um, events. And it's not surprising because it is a government bureaucracy. It will lag. It's not well-funded. And I think that speaks to some of the remedies. I can tell you anecdotally, we went to the FDA with a device that reversed stroke. And if you know that stroke is a $50 billion uh, cost on the American economy annually, you would think, boy, the FDA would approve this in two seconds. But we showed them films of clinical cases that we did outside the United States in developed countries. And the panel, 12 distinguished people, w wouldn't look at the video. They would just looked at us and said, that's impossible. It cannot work. And we're saying to them, but, but look at the science. And it was just you were talking to a blind man. There was no point in, in addressing it with him. So that's one example. And another example um, along the same lines is, is something that was alluded to uh, earlier and actually mentioned, this pill that's going to, actually you're going to take the pill and it's going to alert your physician whether you took the pill, what time you took the pill, and, and all of this medication, which is terribly important because we find that a lot of the healthcare problems are because people are simply not taking their medication, even though they're reporting that they're taking their medication. Now, I just ask you, how is the FDA ever going to be able to get their arms around something like that and actually say, yes, this works or this doesn't work or it's safe, it's effective? I just see um, nightmare upon nightmare coming unless we radically restructure the way the FDA is funded and who sits on these FDA panels. To your point, I would simply add, I don't think that the FDA is protecting American industry. I think the FDA, as many regulatory bodies, um, winds up working for the largest regulated body. So I think the FDA knows how to work with Johnson & Johnson because they have unlimited amounts of money, they have lobbyists in Washington, and they can get virtually anything approved because they'll throw enough dollars at it. But when you come as a small company to the FDA, they're going to put every obstacle in front of you and you simply now have to pay a lot of money and spend a lot of your limited resources and effort to get through. So trust me, as an American, I can tell you that they're as mean to us as they are mean to you <laughs> because, we're, because we're not J&J. &J. Um, on the other hand, I will say with, with great admiration for the Europeans that the notified body system works fabulously because there are many notified bodies. And if so, I know, that if, I, if I know, for example, that TUV, um, the German notified body, is too rigorous, strict, and asks for ridiculous things, I'll simply forum shop and find that notified body that I'm comfortable working with and find rapport. I think the other great difference between FDA and notified bodies 
is that the FDA, because of our American adversarial system, where we're used to, we believe that truth comes from two parties fighting it out, so the FDA sees its, itself as a goaltender, and they are not going to let that fall into the goal. And the notified body sees itself as a guide, and they say, well, if, let's follow me, and this is how we're going to do it so that you get approval. And we found that to be a huge difference in addressing the two bodies. Finally, as to what I would have done differently um, had I known today what I, when, when I started, um, I will speak to um, uh, women's health care. Five years ago, we started a, a company in women's health care to bring um, innovative medical devices to women's health care. The reason was I have a gynecologist friend, and he showed me some of the implements in gynecology, and all I could think of was the Inquisition. And um, I thought, boy, there's got to be a better way to do this, and we came up with fabulously new innovative uh, technologies for women's healthcare, only to learn that virtually the world doesn't care about women's health. Um, the dollars get spent on cardiology, neurology, um, big male type diseases, and women's healthcare to this day is underfunded, um, underexplored, and the medical establishment really just doesn't care. It's not quote unquote sexy. So to all the women in the audience, this is a rallying cry. If you want better health care and you deserve to have as good health care as men do, um, you need to start demanding it. Thank you very much. Jerry, there's perhaps a counterexample to that, however, because I'm trying to get a discussion going. Certainly in this country, breast cancer is much better addressed than prostate cancer. So there are, there are exceptions, and I'm trying deliberately to be controversial to get the debate going. I'm going to open it fairly soon because I, I would like to have 40, 45 minutes. I think we've had some fantastic contributions from all five speakers. I think there have been three issues that have been raised almost by everybody, uh, clinical trials, regulatory agencies, uh, proving the economic benefits of your innovation, we've sort of touched upon uh, and perhaps haven't really dealt in quite so much detail. Um, rather just open to, to that one particular point, um, I would like the, the, each one of the panels, before we open it to everybody, to address what are the tips. Now, Jerry's been fantastic. He's already given us a tip on uh, regulatory agencies. Go to European Notified Bodies, run the FDA if you can help it at all. Um, in the areas that are, could be seen as barriers or challenges, setting up the clinical trials, other tips on regulatory agencies, demonstrating benefit, whether it's a healthcare or an economic benefit, um, going around the panel again and uh, do it slightly different order. We'll start from the left and go across to the right. Starting with Chris, you know, do you have a tip for people in the audience to address one of these issues? So, because we're probably going to get into discussion and we're going to talk about the barriers and the challenges to make sure that we have something positive to take away. I'd like all the experts to contribute one tip in one of those three areas. And, Jerry, you've already given us one, but if you can think of a second one, that'd be great. Uh, but, Chris, is there anything that you can think from your experience that helps you get around some of those challenges and barriers that may be useful to share with the audience? Yeah, I think, you know, in our field of trying to get innovations out into poor countries, I think there has been a historical over-reliance exclusively on the public sector to do so. Um, Peter talked a bit about this in his talk, that, um, you know, recognizing the role of the private sector in innovations in health care delivery, particularly in poor countries, and typically it won't be one or the other, it'll be a mix. We're finding this, for instance, in our work on uh, trying to improve the 
the detection, treatment, and adherent therapy of tuberculosis. Challenging in a very poor resource setting because of the six-month regimen of treatment. So using novel technologies like, like cell phones and other in communication technologies as supportive of the adherence, but also bringing in private pharmacies, um, the kinds of places where people actually go for services on a regular basis, and implementing a mix of public and private health services to actually get the job done. I think we have been too narrowly focused on just how do we work through the, the government system of hospitals in most poor countries where that system is wildly understaffed. Um, so opening it up to private sector innovation for delivery as well as for production of new technology. Indeed. Um, Pete, any, any tips for the audience that uh, they might find helpful? Yeah, sort of one and a half tips. One <laughs> is um, I fully agree with Jerry's remarks about the, um, the uh, FDA and similar regulatory bodies, and I think early engagement is, is the key issue with them. I think it's absolutely right that they lack the expertise, and they want to engage with people early on so that they can put in place people to talk to you in a sensible fashion about new ideas. So I think early engagement with these bodies is a key issue. And then it's slightly related to this, but coming from a university sector, you tend to feel that you've got an invention which the whole world will rush to use. And I think there should be more engagement on our part in the universities with the potential end users. So I think one of the things I've learned over the years is to be a solution provider rather than a technology pusher. Okay, well I'm sure the, there's people nodding in agreement, so when we go to the question time, you can either make a contribution agreeing with the panel or disagreeing, uh, because obviously we want to, to share people's experience in, in the debate time. Jerry's already done very well by giving us a, a, at least one and a half tips. Um, have you got another tip that you could pass on? Yeah, I'm going to give you another tip, but then I'm going to um, bring another challenge that okay. I didn't get to. But further to uh, what Professor Dobson said, I, I think with regards to early engagement of the FDA and other notified bodies, what we found to be tremendously effective is to go to the FDA and not ask for the car with the four doors, and et cetera, et cetera, but just to tell them, look, we've got this wheel and we just want to get approval for the wheel. And, and by doing so, they get comfortable with the technology. And then when you come back and you ask for the car, they already know the wheel and they figure, well, it's just three more wheels. Go ahead and you get it. So going back to the example I gave with the stroke therapy, after we realized that no matter how much data we showed the FDA, they just are not going to get this stroke therapy thing, we went back to them and said, you know, it's not stroke therapy at all. We're just silly. What it does is it, pro it stops emboli from going to the brain. So really it's a filter. And they say, oh, filters, we know filters. Yeah, you can be approved. And so once we got approval for the filter, they live with it, and now they can digest the stroke therapy. With that said, I want to address another challenge, which we found to be virtually um, a, a showstopper, and that is reimbursement. And so we all think about regulatory bodies getting through the FDA, but that's only the beginning of the battle because once you have FDA approval, you have to make sure that this device is going to get reimbursed because if it's not going to get reimbursed by insurance or the government, it doesn't matter how good it is, nobody's going to buy it. And getting reimbursement codes today in this economic environment <coughs> is a nightmare. Okay, well, I, I, I thought somebody might mention the word reimbursement, Medicare, Medicaid, and so on. Uh, we might have that in discussion time. Um, as well as a moderator, I'd like to make contributions. We go round, and actually, I will 
uh, reinforce Jerry's point on, on the single wheel. We had exactly the same thing that happened in terms of using a mobile phone for diabetes self-management. And there we were fortunate because before us, there was a Korean company that tried to take the four-wheel car to the FDA. So they actually built the uh, blood glucose monitor into the mobile phone. And uh, then they tried to get that certified by the FDA. So the FDA then classified a mobile phone as a medical device. And as a result of that, the, the company went bankrupt. This is about <laughs> three or four years ago. Because, of course, we all want to use... Uh, our, our mobile phones without them being classified as medical devices. So what we did, we actually designed a Bluetooth cradle for the blood glucose monitor. Uh, that got certified by the FDA because, as you say, it was just an extension. We're just adding a Bluetooth radio transmitter to blood sugar meters. That gets the information to mobile phone. It's exactly what the Korean company wanted to do, and we'd managed it by labeling it as a spare wheel rather than a complete car. So that is very important. This piece of lateral thinking... And that's what um, people like Jerry and people like engineers should be good at. Think laterally even before you go to the FDA and don't get the stroke reversal device approved but the filter approved. That's, I think, a great lesson for everybody. It, it does make things easier and then you can build on that incremental approach. Uh, and I'm sure there are... I've certainly got another two examples of this and I'm sure other members of the panel could, could add to that. So start small, get something that they're familiar with approved and then build gradually, and they're quite happy once you've started talking to them, and you're coming back quite regularly, because you've opened the file, and there seems to be somebody to talk to, and it's much easier, so uh, I think that's a great bit of advice. Constantine, it's possibly unfair, because you are, um, you are bringing the average age of this panel to below 50, um, and so uh, we, we're not looking necessarily to you for experience, but for enthusiasm, but I'm sure, nevertheless... <laughs> I know this guy. <laughs> Damning with faint praise. Um, but I'm sure there are some tips that you can pass on anyway. The, the most upsetting thing is going from left to right, I lost most of my tips. <laughs> and, and now you've also just taken away my opening line. So um, I'm, 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 I'm really in great trouble. So I, 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 you're absolutely right. I, 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 can't, I can't give a tip because I'm in the process of doing it. But um, trying, trying to complement many of the things that have already been said, one, one of the things that I have found most useful and most challenging is um, constantly putting yourself when you're trying to get new technology in somebody else's shoes. And this is a process that you do on a daily basis. You're so involved developing something for five, ten years. It's your life's passion. You know, you, 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 the first thing you think of in the morning is the last thing you think of at night. And then suddenly you've got to take a step back and say, right, how will the rest of the world see this? Someone who doesn't see it through my eyes. And this is extremely useful when talking to regulators, because when talking to regulators, they're not going to come at it from your angle. That's almost a guarantee. They're going to come at it from the point of, you know, uh, we've had regulators ask cardiologists for liver surgery. We've had regulators ask pharmacists for um, um, a transplantation application. So they will get information from people you cannot possibly imagine or you would not even have thought to be adequate. The same goes when you talk to bigger companies. You know, you see your will to get this product to market. You need to see their perspective as to how they are going to, to see the advantages of you getting your product to market. So you're constantly having to, 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 to assume a mistaken identity and, and actually try and see the world through other people's eyes. And, and that can help anticipate, because that's really what we're talking about. Anticipation is 90% of the battle. 
talking to regulators is probably the first thing we started thinking about when the cash was in the bank for Organox. It was even before we actually decided what shape and size the device was going to be, it really was the very first order of the day because it is that important. And in that process, putting yourself in someone else's shoes is definitely one important bit. The other important bit is information. You see all these movies about companies spending you know, billions of pounds on counter-espionage and finding out what the competition is doing. And you think, well, how is that really possible? Well, actually, it is extremely important to know what else is out there and what issues people are finding with it. So finding something to compare your product, your idea to, something that is as close to similar as it can possibly be, finding out what issues they have encountered and trying to anticipate them is also going to provide a significant guiding light. Now, whether that's the right way to do it, I don't know yet, but hopefully I'll be back in a couple of years to tell you that it was. Thank you very much, Constantine. Anthony, please. Thanks. I'd just like to come back. I mean, my tip would be that importance of building a multidisciplinary team right from the outset. Um, <coughs> so often it's the technology that starts things and the academic scientist. Um, and so often we, we see um, the real creative idea spark people, but often it's very highly correlated with people that um, get distracted easily that aren't great at keeping to time frames and aren't the, all these things are me. They're really bad at um, doing a lot of things at one time and underestimating time, etc. So partnering them are, and, and real partnerships with people who, who are good at those things um, is really important um, from the outset. So many startups, I'm sure lots of people have seen, um, fail because they run out of money because they haven't got those kind of management disciplines um, in them. Time and time again, it's probably the key reason I think why why startups fail. And um, I heard the analogy once that it's a bit like um, it's faster to ride in a pack in a peloton on a bike um, than riding singly because you all take a um, a go at the front in turn. And that's quite a good analogy. But I think probably a better one I had when I was um, sitting at my trampoline with my kids the other day. You put the, the skeleton up, and then everyone there has springs around the the stuff you jump on, and everyone stands at a corner. But if one of the person at the corner is putting all their springs on, no one else can put their springs on on their side because there's no tension left. And it's, it's just like that. You've got to have one spring on one corner, one spring on the other corner, etc., etc., etc. And and building startups successfully is a bit like that. Okay, well, thank you very much um, for that, every member of the panel. There's one elephant in the room that we've not mentioned, but I, I don't want to open it up unless somebody wants to raise it in, in one of their questions. Uh, we've not mentioned IPI, intellectual property rights, management of the IP, and so on, um, and you know, building up uh, protection uh, in, in a field, especially when you're working in developing countries, obviously a, a, a key issue. Uh, but as I said, I promised that the last 35 minutes we would open it to the panel. So if you could please raise, uh, open it to the audience, sorry, raise your hands. There are two people with microphones. Um, and uh, well, we'll start from the bottom and work upwards. I'll try and do it that way and then come down again. So there was the lady at the front here, please, who's got a question. Uh, so the microphone's just coming. No, because they won't hear you at the back. So thank you, Nick. Um, building on this last point about building proper teams and multidisciplinary, having multiple, multiple multidisciplinary skills within the team, um, perhaps for Peter or 
really anyone who has a relevant answer. My question is, who were the people who helped you spin out the company that were non-scientists, and exactly how did they do it? Was it mostly in the financials and the regulatory issues, or was it in something else that, that really helped you get it to market? Um, I think uh, in, the, in both the spin-out companies that I had and other ones which I advised, uh, it's very important to have someone there on the financials helping right from day one. But the people who are most valuable in those early days in years one and two were people who could go out and get market information, who could intelligence gather. Uh, they were the most valuable people because they could then direct the techies in the company to do the right thing, to solve the right problems. So it comes around to what I was saying about do away with the technology push because as academics and some of the young postdocs we employ, they're perfectly good at that. But what they need is some more market direction. So the most valuable people in those early days were people who, who could get sales and marketing information. They often had uh, scientific qualifications as well, which helped. But they were the really valuable people. They were the valuable resource. Chris? Yeah, if I could just build on that. Part of path success is our team model. Our, te our technology teams have multiple people, but they always have three kinds of people. They have a technologist, engineer, microbiologist, somebody who understands the technology. They have a program person, somebody who's lived or worked extensively in the developing world, understands the health systems we're designing for. And, and then the third person is a commercialization corporate partnership person. So we have at PATH probably about 15 MBAs, typically have come out of business schools, worked in the industry for five to 10 years, and then come to work for us. So they understand what it's like to be on the other side of the table, what the company's perspective is in terms of our negotiations and bring in this data that Peter was talking about, about the markets, about how to create demand. Because all the great technologies, you know, there's this assumption that if we build it, somebody will want to, everybody will want to use it, and that isn't the case. And, and the team dynamics are quite important, because the technologists tend to be comfortable in the lab tweaking things to make them perfect when we can go to market or go to delivery with things that are far from perfect but will still improve people's lives. And that's where the, the health systems perspective brings that we need the solution today. You can't work on it for another five years. And the commercial, commercialization perspective says we're going to have to transfer this to a company that can make a profit if we're ever going to scale it and make it sustainable. So that multidisciplinary team dynamic is actually central to our success. And the commercialization perspective is, is actually a quite critical component of that. Thanks very much. Um, take another question there. You can remember about affiliations because we forgot for the first question. Um, thanks. My name is uh, Thomas. I'm a research assistant here at uh, university with uh, Lionel as well. Um, uh, Chris, I completely agree with you with regards to new business models being key for healthcare innovation. Um, in many instances, it's not so much you know linear value chain, but like a value network. How have you found in your experience investors responding to those sort of innovative business models? I think they're just beginning to wake up to it um, because the investors are much more, you know, especially we're dealing primarily where places where market fails. As, as Peter said in his talk this morning, where the markets work, there's very little role for value added from the, from the nonprofit or philanthropic sector. So we're, 
we're going in to sort of bridge um, the, the gap, if you will, in places where markets are failing and to help people see the opportunity of some of these new business models. So part of it is translational. And one of the interesting things that I think will be transformative is that investors in the emerging markets, in places like India and China, see the opportunity of the more innovative bottom of the pyramid business models faster, frankly, because they're closer to it. They see the size of the, that market and its potential, and they see the limitations of getting the traditional high margin goods into those markets. And so they're more, and they're, they're more, frankly more inclined to take risks. So this is why I think there's a transformation to come in the next decade as not only innovators and entrepreneurs in those emerging markets, but finance, financial and capital markets in those emerging markets, I think are going to join forces to help create some very interesting new solutions based on new business models as well as new science and technology. Jerry and Anthony, do you want to comment upon that? I mean, well, I, I, I'll add, um, you know, I come from this, to, to this um, business from a different side than, than you do. Um, and uh, what we do um, and we strive to do is to find partners among the large companies. So we will frequently take our very early stage technology to a Johnson & Johnson, I mentioned earlier, and we'll say to J&J, &J, look, this is what we're developing. You know, would you have an interest? Is this an area that interests you? And, and frequently, because they may be interested, but they don't want to spend the dollars uh, to try it internally, and, and they'd rather buy a finished product, they will guide us as to what kind of finished product they would buy. And then it's we can plan ourselves towards acquisition by J&J &J by very early on designing our product or our system of products to fit and be compatible with what it is that they're doing. So I think that there's um, tremendous room for those types of partnerships and it's almost essential because the private sector money um, is, is very dry now for medical <coughs> devices. It's very hard to raise money in this economic environment. So we have to go down the strategic corporate route very early on to try and get those development dollars and partnerships. Okay, Anthony, do you want anything from Australian perspective? Oh, just to echo Chris's comment really from an Asia-Pacific type perspective, um, innovative financing mechanisms are incredibly important and the amount of funds available in that region and the fact that the economies have just kept on growing um, in the last few years is, is going to change the shape of things. Okay. Um, another question. One there and then there. So we'll go there and then the next question there. And don't forget to introduce yourselves, please. Hello, Adrian Bradley. Um, we've, there's been a lot of discussion in the panel about the difficulty of obtaining regulatory approval because of the, um, as Jerry alluded, the, the biggest client of the regulatory authority is inevitably the, the biggest user of that, that system, so they become um, uh, focused on what those... Uh, types of entity are involved with and when you're talking about very innovative um, medical technology it doesn't fit into um, the patterns of what's what they're used to dealing with I I'm interested in what the panel have found in securing intellectual property rights do they come across the same kind of issues uh, and difficulties because of the um, you're dealing with something that is doesn't fit into conventional categories so um, when you're dealing with um, patent granting authorities, for example, does this present a big hurdle to securing, securing appropriate protection for these innovations? 
I'm sure we've all got something to say on that, so, but it's time I start on the right and work this way, or if you don't pass on to the person on the left. Um, I think, I mean, personally, from, from my experience, one of the particular issues in, in the IP area is this, this phenomenon of patent thickets, um, where there is a whole range of different patents that may or may not be relevant. Um, so uh, uh, when we went to Big Pharma, there were, there were a whole load of relevant uh, of patents that had been awarded, and it was just very difficult without spending a, a huge amount of money to work out which one was um, was actually, if any, was going to be uh, going to be relevant. So that that is a challenge, um, and no quick answers other than knowing a really smart IP person to help you through that. I think I think I would echo that advice. Um, don't 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 send a carpenter to do a plumber's job. Is is really the one of the important lessons we learned early on with with, with IP. Um, we had a, a very capable IP firm advising us on, on on European patents, and the European patents um, actually went through relatively easily, and we actually got into trouble with one of those patents with the U.S. Patent Office. And I think the problem wasn't the U.S. Patent Office. The problem was the there was a difference in language between the local IP firm and the subcontractor they were using in the States and the US Patent Office. And as soon as we employed someone who was local to the sort of Washington community and knew the language that the US Patent Office spoke, we had the issue resolved within about two and a half months. And what was actually absolutely catalytic in getting the issue resolved is the inventors, the scientists, us flying over and meeting with the examiners and actually sitting down because 90% of the issues, as, as has been outlined with all government agencies, is misunderstanding or misconception. And there are some issues you've given the opportunity, no matter how novel the technology, no matter how different it is, that are best resolved face to face. And, and, and there you find that if you're given that opportunity, you take it. And that's your opportunity to say, well, actually, this is really different to the objection you're raising because and, and, and if you have some data to present, some, some clear scientific argument as to why it is different, I don't think it can be easily contested. So, so that's the way to bypass those problems. I'd add to that and tell you that a good patent lawyer can get a patent on anything. And if you check it, there is a patent in the US Patent Office for how to pet a cat, how to stroke a cat. I'm not kidding, or how to swing on a swing. So a good patent lawyer can get you a patent on anything. The question is, what is the value of your patent? And I tell you sadly that in today's economic environment, and generally in the business environment, mm -hmm. because our companies have grown so large, they don't care. You can have the best patent in the world. They're going to infringe boldly and, and um, brazenly because their attitude is, you can sue me, and 15 years from now, I'll settle with you if you're still around. And typically, a startup company will not be around. That's a clear answer, um, <laughs> and yeah, a true one. And I, I think just to add the one about the cat is, I think, having worked in the telemedicine, telehealth field, what is extraordinary about that field is the people who sat down in the 80s and 90s and thought of concepts, almost kind of science fiction, and patented them. And now we come along, we've actually made this work, which is the hard bit, yeah. actually to make it work with a Bluetooth cell phone and getting the right... Um, application and all the connections to servers. You know, the real thing of making work as an engineer, we know that's the difficulty. We can't protect that because somebody sat down and wrote on the back of an envelope in the 80s and called it a wireless device even before mobile phones or cell phones were invented. That is now uh, a barrier to us being able to protect. So there seems to be less and less value 
because of that, because of these concept patterns, and because of what you just said, um, uh, Jerry, that uh, you know the big the big kids in the block say, okay, I don't care if you've got a good pattern. We'll you know see you in court. Pete, do you want to put a different spin on that, or do you agree? Yeah, I agree with a lot of that, and I think that there's a big difference between the European Patent Office and the U.S. Patent Office. The European one tends to employ scientists and engineers, and the U.S. one, you might get a scientist or engineer. Uh, we had a case with a sunscreen preparation, which was based on zinc oxide with some dopant in it, and the U.S. Patent Office wouldn't let it through because it was they said infringing a Japanese company that had patented the same thing for a security card reader. Now, they're totally different applications, and we could not get across this. And eventually, we did it by looking at the Japanese patent, following the recipe to make the compound exactly, and proving that you couldn't make it. So the, the patent that they were claiming was infringing was it unmakeable by the recipe given. We could not get across to them that a sunscreen is a totally different product from a security card. And that, that is the kind of misunderstanding that you can get into easily with the US Patent Office. Um, you know, just another perspective about it. You know, clearly in our work in global health, intellectual property regimes are kind of like regulatory regimes. They're highly fragmented. You need expertise. You need to navigate them. They're frustrating. But what's interesting in our experience, we work with, as I said, over 70 companies, and they've been navigating and struggling with the same things. Our biggest challenge is universities, at least in the, in the, in the United States. I don't know about how it is here in the UK. Uh, we work with over 30 universities, and university tech transfer offices tend to greatly overvalue um, the commercial value of intellectual property. It's all brilliant science. Um, but whether it turns into brilliant and profitable products. So, we found greater rigidity um, around um, in, in our negotiations with universities than we have with companies, um, who often take a very pragmatic view about how intellectual property can be deployed and where it can be, be deployed. Um, and our perspective at PATH, because we also generate intellectual property, is how do we use it as a means to an end? So in some cases, we develop something. We tightly patent it, make an exclusive license to a company. It's the, only, it's the clear way to achieve public health impact through that commercialization partnership. In other um, times, like recently we developed and patented a new approach for thermostability of vaccines. And we didn't want to exclusively license it to a vaccine company because you know, we, it, we have to thermostabilize all the vaccines if we're going to get rid of the refrigerators. And then when we looked at the transaction costs of licensing to dozens of vaccine companies, we realized that our goal of improving global public health was best served by simply publishing and putting that technology into the, into the uh, public domain, and now several companies are using it in a non-proprietary way. So our filter for how we think about managing our intellectual property is against our mission. Unfortunately, in many universities we deal with, the mission seems to be generating unrestricted revenue for the university, which is an important goal. Um, but it's not the only goal. If you think about how to bring science and technology to making the biggest impact in terms of improving people's lives. So I think there's a dialogue that's needed within tech transfer offices and other university uh, policies around intellectual property to think about how do we maximize the impact of academia on the improvement of people's lives. And I, I think around intellectual property is one area that there's some particular work that can be done. 
I think it's very good for airport. I said I would take the next question there, but I would like to give, is there anybody from ISIS Innovation here, or are they all running their entrepreneurship workshops in parallel with this? Uh, because I, I think it is a fair point. It's one that I've met with many investors that our tech transfer offices are far too aggressive in um, uh, uh, promoting the university's intellectual property. But I'd like to give uh, anybody from ISIS Innovation in the room who might want to put an opposite view, or uh, they're probably elsewhere running these workshops trying to increase the value of our, the university's intellectual property as we speak. <laughs> so there's nobody here. <laughs> I, you want to speak up for ISIS? Um, uh, n n no, I wouldn't dream of it. Um, uh, <laughs> um, but but um, uh, although, although ISIS, ISIS were, um, have been extraordinarily um, supportive of us, so I, 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 I didn't mean that to come out quite the way it did. Um, the, the, um, I just wanted to, to add one thing, um, because I think it's a very important point as to whether a, a patent application is the most appropriate protection mechanism. So you've raised the, the, the issue, well, if you want something widely uptake and publish it, don't patent it. And I think that's a very fair point. The other end of the spectrum is the last thing you probably should do if you really want to protect something is patent it because that's public domain information and people forget that very often. So, so it's actually slightly ironic that what you actually put in the patent will actually be accessible to your competitors within a few years of you being granted your patent. And there is this black box know-how which all companies have, which is, you know, the recipe as published in the patent probably will not quite work because if someone is hoping to actually make revenue out of it, they will have kept some part of the recipe that is absolutely crucial out of the patent in order to make sure that it doesn't get infringed upon. So it's important to, to, to be aware of all the graduations of what actually uh, having intellectual property means what level of protection it actually provides you and whether it's worth having at all if your purposes are charitable and you want to save the world. So I'd just like to add to that. We have to have patents or patent applications because investors, mm -hmm. you know, they don't get it. They think that's really what, what's valuable. And no matter how many times I tell them, look, it only has value if we have hundreds of thousands of dollars to litigate, um, they want to know that we have patents. With that said, we are jealous about guarding our manufacturing know-how and trade secrets because as um, Constantine. Constantine said, uh, that's key. If we know how to make something that, and we have a, a, a less expensive way to make it and a more effective way to make it, we'll be able to fight off the competition. And that's really where the value is. And that's why we really sign up our manufacturers in an ironclad agreement that they can't take this anywhere, they can't make it for anyone. Anything that they develop on our nickel belongs to us, and that's really where you want to focus your efforts. Well, thank you very much. We could have a whole debate on that. But uh, the next question over there, as, as I'll take one from there, and then I'll go to the back. There's nobody at the back. Uh, there's a person here. Just as the microphone moves, two precisions. For those who may not be aware, who are not from Oxford, ISIS is the university's tech transfer company, wholly owned by the university. And, of course, public domain for patents is not when the patent is granted. It's when 12 months after filing. So you, it's a very early disclosure to the rest of the world of what you're actually doing. Leonard, if you um, want to say where yes, you're from. I, I work both in industry at GE and in Imperial College, um, both sides of the fence. Uh, one of my questions is, uh, has the, have the panelists dealt with the insurance companies as a, a partner? Because one of the issues is that uh, the health systems typically deal with treatment of patients who have something rather than prevention and avoidance of readmissions and early detection. 
And there could be systems out there which could um, detect things early or warning signs which are not reimbursed. So we're talking about remote monitoring, things like that, which uh, if, uh, if there's no reimbursement or no payment for it, why should the company invest in developing the system? That it, so it's part of the, I think, the three R's, the reimbursement, the, the resistance, and the regulation. These are the problems that you, you have. And uh, one of the resistances also can be you're giving a technology which takes away the livelihood of the person who's referring the patient. You know, well, your example of focused ultrasound, we can treat fibromas, uterine fibromas, without having to do a hysterectomy, but the gynecologist is the one who does the hysterectomy, and he has to refer it to the radiologist, so he's taking away his own livelihood. So he doesn't refer. And well, this, tra we've trained the gynecologist to use ultrasound. Well, yes, but the, it, it, it's done under ra normally typically done in the radiology department with an MR system, usually, and maybe an ultrasound, but it's... So I think that's, yeah, that's an exceptional point because you have to understand the food chain. Among the other things that you do in medical devices, you have to understand who the point of call is going to be and whether that person is going to refer the patient on to someone else or, or wants to keep that patient as a source of revenue. And we, we've experienced that many times where we've had devices, which I'll, uh, pardon me, for, for example, AAA, um, and you, you, that, that just doesn't get to the doctor who would treat it because... The, the fellow who gets the patient in the beginning has no incentive to look for it, to diagnose it. And uh, equally important, I think, is what you said about preventive care. The United States doesn't like preventive care. They don't reimburse for it. They don't care about it. We like to treat things. We like to do therapy. We don't like to prevent. Yeah. So, so the other thing is uh, with the, um, we have to think of the partners, the business models. So if you have a sensor, you're going to be working with telecommunications <coughs> companies, with database companies with the health service with the GP it's about I don't know how many people in this partnership if there is a reimbursement how do you sort out who gets what in this chain and this is a big the business mo models can be more important than the technology yeah. and the and the same uh, telecommunications companies are worried about regulation because suppose they miss a signal or something and there's a legal case because the, they, they're very worried. They've got the technologies now, but maybe they don't want to do it yet until all this is sorted out. So, yeah. so if you're making your sensor, you're part of a system, and, and your sensor by itself will not be any use to anybody unless you can transmit data and do other things with it. So well, uh, I, I'm very much in favour of sensors. And if I may have a go, as Chairman's prerogative, one question I can take before handing over the panel, because I, I have worked in this area, and in fact, just to say one positive thing about the NHS, it is perhaps easier to do preventive technology in this country because we have an NHS than the US. I know the example of diabetes in the US, you can have reimbursement for having your leg amputated, which I think is $20,000, um, but you don't get reimbursement for learning how to self-manage 20 years earlier before you develop all these complications. In the NHS, although innovation in the NHS is tough, and we've got Professor Dame Sally Davis tomorrow, who is uh, the person who runs the National Institute of Health Research on behalf of the Department of Health, um, it, it's not a solved problem, but it is easier to go and talk to a primary care trust about prevention, about trying to avoid admissions of people who've got COPD, diabetes, hypertension, than it probably is, although the counterpoint in the U.S. is probably the VA, the veterans. VA uh, and Kaiser. Uh, yeah. are, are other ways of doing what we're trying to do here in the NHS. So um, the NHS in some ways is more open to preventive medicine because it has to pick up the bill on behalf of all the taxpayers uh, who are UK citizens, 
Um, so, so there's a positive there. In terms of, of, of the sensor and the alert not picked up, the liability, I, I'm not sure it's a real problem. Having worked with Vodafone and O2 for the last five years, if you are very clear that what you offer is additional to what is already provided, and if you, as an engineer, it's what we think about, you have a fail-safe mechanism. So, for example, we monitor patients undergoing chemotherapy. And there, if their symptoms are such that they ought to be brought in, um, you have to go back to the patient within 30 minutes of them having filled in their diary on their cell phone. Now, of course, the network can be down. Of course, the data might not get to the server that sends the alert to the cancer specialist nurse's uh, bleeper. Therefore, you build in a system. You tell the patient that they have generated a set of data that should cause somebody to call them within 30 minutes. If they haven't, this is the landline number to call. So I think as engineers, we're able to do that. Uh, it means that Vodafone doesn't have a liability if its network is down and so on. There are, there are solutions. It is interesting that there are all sorts of partners coming into the healthcare business. AT&T, uh, Verizon Wireless, um, all announced, and of course Qualcomm, despite the demise of LifeCom, have announced healthcare business units within their telcos. In this country, Orange Healthcare, Vodafone in December, and O2 this month have all announced the creation of healthcare business. So I think telcos are definitely going to be one of the partners, not just in the developed world, but as we heard this morning, of course, in the developing world too. We haven't taken a lot of questions from the back because obviously um, it's easier to see you guys in the front. I'd like to take a couple from the back rows and so on. Uh, lady on the right, please. And then, yes, there is somebody who I said I would take a question from. We'll come back to you. Hi, uh, Lindsay McGoy. I'm a research fellow, a postdoc research fellow here at the Business School, working in, in particular on drug regulation. Um, something I found through some interviews at places like the FDA with regulators is that regulators can often be quite obsessively focused on trying to figure out ways to expedite new therapies to the market, in part because they're so aware of the public perception of the agencies as being quite ineffective and overly bureaucratic. But what then happens is that there's almost this perverse influence on rushing to the market Me Too therapies where um, there's often very little therapeutic sort of innovativeness, but where there's a lot of commercial value and where safety and efficacy is quite easy to demonstrate on large-scale clinical trials. So my, my question really for those working in the area of medical devices, because I'm really not familiar with this area at all as opposed to pharmaceuticals, is does this sort of almost blind faith on the gold standard of clinical trials and the need to demonstrate efficacy through large-scale clinical trials prove sort of an, an impediment to licensing innovative products that might have a lot of therapeutic sort of value but where their safety and efficacy is harder to demonstrate on the clinical trials that are necessary for licensing a new pharmaceutical? Anthony, do you want to... To start with that, and maybe Constantine, and then because well, is it important to do clinical trials in medical devices in the same way as it is for pharma? Well, I guess I should declare a conflict. I've been director of a clinical trials research That's the unit, why I so uh, I'm going to say yes. <laughs> it is important. Um, I think um, one thing I would say, um, and in the FDA's defence, is they actually don't need to be nearly as expensive as they usually are. So the FDA themselves have um, commissioned a, an initiative called the Clinical Trials Transformation Initiative with Duke and others, and we're partners, um, asking for ways in which you can streamline clinical trials, and they're talking about 75, 90% cost reductions that will still get the trials done quicker and sometimes better uh, and sometimes more safer. 
and the F, uh, you know, in their defence, they have they have um, uh, commissioned that. And I think the other thing that's relevant there, and it probably goes to ISIS and academic tech transfer groups, is you've got to look at what they get asked to do in their annual performance review, in what, what their remit is. Um, and often their most pressing remit is safety. And the thing that they worry most about, the thing that they'll lose their jobs on, is whether they let something through that then turns out to be, you know, everyone talks about another thalidomide, et cetera. So that's, that's going to be guiding them because the people that tell them what to do, that's what they, they most worry about. And clinical trials is, is the best way of making sure that that won't happen. Because a, a lot of the funding for Organox was for clinical trials that you had to raise. Uh, well, this is a funding we're currently raising in the, in the second tranche. Um, so so the, the, the first tranche of funding was for prototype development to enable us to go into clinical trials. It's actually an extremely good question and an extremely pertinent question. And um, in, in order to answer, I think, I think that the subtext is what is a medical device? Um, and a medical device, fortunately and unfortunately, can be many, 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 many different things. I think there's, first of all, a distinction between diagnostic medical devices, um, uh, which I think, but Peter will have a better perspective on this, um, 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 things are a little bit more relaxed on, and that there is therapeutic medical devices where you're actually doing something to the patient, to the environment, where similar concerns to taking a drug through regulatory approval um, are actually uh, rightly so raised. I think the big difference, perhaps, with a medical device is the follow-up time required. So I think, I think that the, uh, if, 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 if by medical device we mean something that doesn't introduce uh, significant new biochemical substances into the circulation, then it's extremely important to be clear about the bit of the process that the medical device is meant to replace or fulfill. So if you're replacing a surgeon's hand with a robotic um, device, for example, that's the bit of the process that you're actually replacing. So the appropriate follow-up is the follow-up that will determine whether the surgery has been a success or not. And that can be five days a month rather than five years. So I think, yes, there is a dire need for both safety and efficacy in medical devices, particularly therapeutic medical devices, but they can be a lot shorter and a lot cheaper than they are for drugs. Do you want to add anything? Because we, we're coming close to the end. So, yeah. I add just very briefly. My experience is mainly with diagnostic medical devices where there are fast tracks through the clear waiver 510K and so on. But there's a very interesting point which Constantine really raised there, and that is that uh, I believe in the last month uh, approval has been given for a therapy, a drug therapy via a nanoparticle which has been classed not as a drug but as a device. So it is a shell containing a drug which has already got approval. I think it's the University of Rice has got this. So it's a, it's a gold-coated shell containing the particle that you put into the body. And this has been approved as a medical device rather than a new drug. So it's obviated the need for extensive clinical trials. I just say a word to the entrepreneurs uh, among you, and I don't know how many here are, are on that side. Um, you only have to go through the traditional clinical trial in devices if you cannot show that your device is comparable to something that's been on the market for the past 10 or 15 years. 
So as an entrepreneur, when you go to your investors, you're showing them your technology, and of course you're explaining it's innovative, it's brand new, there's never been anything like this. And then when you go to the FDA, you say, this is old hat, it's been out there for a million years. <laughs> <laughs> or you do the halfway house, you have three predicate devices run one, and you take a bid from each, which makes you a novel predicate device, which is one tactic we use. I've got time for one more question. There was somebody I'd said, um, we had his arms raised. Sorry, okay, uh, gentleman there to finish us off. Um, with, a, with the last question. Yes, just to really speak in favour of the regulators. Um, as no, take the mic away, please. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I, I should say I, I'm Andrew Larkins from uh, Tritech. We're an electronics design consultancy. And uh, designing medical devices, uh, both therapeutic and diagnostic, um, I'm always pleased to have the regulators around. It helps me sleep at night uh, to know that someone else is reviewing uh, the products that we have developed and uh, that someone else has taken a look at them. And um, when these devices are used on your, uh, your family, your children, are you actually happy that the regulators are there and that they do exist uh, rather than having a totally unregulated environment uh, like the banks last year. <laughs> well, I, I don't think that any of us are suggesting there should not be regulation. I think what we're complaining about is the lack of fairness and level playing field. Yeah. Okay, well, I think that's probably a very good um, exchange to, f to finish on. I think um, we've had a, a, a very information-packed, as, as an information engineer, um, we, we talk about uh, bits of information. I think there have been many bits of information. The bandwidth has been very high in the debate for the last hour and a half, and I'd like uh, you to uh, join me in thanking all the members of the panel for contributing to that.